Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Father God, our desire today is that you would be first in our hearts. Lord, you are the high king of heaven. It is an indisputable fact. But our hearts are so prone, so easily led to put other things on the throne, primarily ourselves. And so, Father, our desire here today is that you would be our vision. And that in seeing you, seeing your greatness, seeing your glory, that we would melt away and that Christ would become everything. Father, we need your spirit today. We're completely dependent upon him as we open your word apart From your spirit, Lord, they are just words on a page. But with your spirit, they are a sword that cuts deep into our hearts, that reveals the thoughts and intents of our hearts. So, Lord, we need you to do the work today. Fill us with the vision of who you are and work in our midst as only you can. Father, take away distractions of, from the previous week, the anxieties of the upcoming week. And Lord, help us to focus, clearly focus today on Christ. We pray all this in His name, pleading His blood. Amen. If you take your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3. 2 Peter chapter 3. And we're continuing on our look at how we are to have power for pilgrims in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Peter begins, 2 Peter, particularly what we see in verse 3, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And that power that grants us these things comes through the knowledge of Him who called us unto His own glory and excellence. And that forms the thesis, if you will, of Peter's letter. This second epistle that he's written, he's giving us a roadmap of what it means to follow and to seek to be like Jesus Christ. And I, I think if, if that knowledge is the key to living the Christian life, then it is important that we have the correct knowledge of who Christ is. I'm wondering today, do we really know God as He is, or do we conceive of Him as we would prefer Him to be? Again, Peter's argument for the entire book is that we have to know God to have the power needed to walk as a pilgrim in this world. Everything needed for life and godliness is provided in that knowledge. Yet my fear is that we have a selective knowledge of who Christ is. We may approach him as a self-help guru who provides helpful little little sayings that can keep us along our path and help us to walk day in and day out. We may view Christ as a genie 
coming to Him and asking Him to give us our wishes and our desires and oftentimes becoming frustrated when we don't get what we want. Often our view of Christ is formed by looking particularly to the wonderful attributes that He does genuinely hold, His mercy, His grace, His love, His kindness. But yet we do this and focus on those without any focus or any hint of the fact that Christ is also a judge. When we strip God of what Scripture describes Him of being, and when we make Him to be as we imagine Him to be, that God does not exist. It is a God of our own imaginations, a God that when we turn to Him, if He doesn't exist, can He help us? No. And so today, Peter, as he has been giving us these pilgrim reminders, again, as we've looked at, we saw how he's called us to remember the Word of God. He's told us that we're to pursue it, we're to reject words that aren't from God, the words of scoffers, and we marvel at what God's Word has done. And then in that word are contained the promises of God, where God's promises are not bound by time. He acts as though one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And then He is a patient God. He's not slow to fulfill His promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And these are glorious truths of who Christ is, but as Peter comes to end these reminders that he's given us, he now calls us to remember the wrath of God. Look with me in 2 Peter chapter 3. I'll begin in verse 8. I actually just sort of summarize those verses, but we're going to be focusing today particularly at verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8. But do not overlook this fact, this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done in it shall be exposed since verse 11 all these things are thus to be dissolved what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness peter after providing a clear, hopeful message that God is patient and that His patience endures the sins even of those whom He is going to save for the sake of saving them, Christ will lose none of His people. But let us not think for a moment that God's patience and His waiting to come and to set right all the evils in this world is an indication that He will not judge. And so right on the heels of providing such a wonderful passage of hope, Peter reminds us that God will judge. God's wrath will come. 
Again, notice what he says in verse 10. This is not a possibility. It's not a a chance that this is going to happen. It is certain. The day of the Lord will come. You know, it's important for us to recognize this reality, particularly as we see the world around us raging against the Lord and against His anointed. If you were to walk out in the world today and talk about the idea or the concept of God's wrath, you're going to be laughed at. You're going to be mocked. It's going to be something that isn't going to be considered a legitimate thing. And frankly, many people, many teachers even in the church, have shied away from this clear teaching of Scripture because they know that it's not a popular teaching. And yet the Bible is abundantly clear. In fact, the psalmist speaks of this in Psalm 94, verses 4 through 7. He speaks of how God's patience so that He can save His people actually encourages the wicked, by their sinful actions, to continue in sinfulness. Notice what's said. They pour out their arrogant words. All the evildoers boast. They crush your people, O Lord, and afflict your heritage. They kill the widow and the sojourner and murder the fatherless. And they say, so this is how they justify their sinful actions, the Lord does not see. The God of Jacob does not perceive. What we find very clearly here is that even in the times of David, wickedness used the mercy of God as an excuse for sin. Wickedness used the grace of God as a way to say, well, God's not going to pay us back. This has been going on like this for ages. In fact, that's one of the things the false prophets had been saying that Peter points out earlier on in chapter 3. The scoffers in verse 4 are saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. People will use God's mercy as an excuse to say, well, nothing's happening. I'm getting away with it. Nobody's hurt. I'll keep doing it. And they use that as an excuse for sin. But the psalmist goes on to remind us the God who created or planted the ear, does He not hear? The God who formed the eye, does He not see? He who disciplines the nations, does He not rebuke? He who teaches man knowledge, the Lord knows the thoughts of man that they are but a breath. There's a clear warning here in this passage, and what Peter is pointing to as well is, look, God made ears. He hears all. God made your eyes. He sees all. God doesn't just see your actions or hear the results of what you've done. He also knows not just your actions, but what's in your heart, the things that you're thinking And so there is a clear understanding that God knows all your wicked deeds. And notice what the psalmist ends in Psalm 94. He 
will bring back on them their iniquity. And what? Wipe them out for their wickedness. The Lord our God will wipe them out. It's so important for us to recognize that God's day, the day of the Lord, will come. Now this is a fearful thing. And and what Peter is going to remind his readers with has both a positive and a negative reality to it. A positive sense in that these believers who are suffering at the hands of unjust men, there is a day where justice will be executed on the earth, where God will come back and He will set right all the wrongs that have ever happened in this world. And for that we long and cry out, Come, Lord Jesus. But it's also a fearful thing that if we persist in sin, that there will be a day where God will judge the secrets of men. God's wrath will come. Peter uses the term here in verse 10. He refers to the wrath of God with a a technical term that's used throughout Scripture to refer to God's judgment. He calls it the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come. Now, Peter has already alluded to this by referring to it as a day of judgment in chapter 2, verse 9. And in this passage, particularly in verse 3, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7, he speaks of it as a day of judgment, a day of the judgment of and destruction of the ungodly. Now, the day of the Lord is a multifaceted um, subject in Scripture, and, you know, like, my sermons are long enough as it is. If you want me to explain the day of the Lord, we're going to be here till 4 or 5 o'clock tonight, all right? There's a lot that is said in Scripture about the day of the Lord. And what we, just to quickly note some things about it, it comes in multiple events that culminates in the final declaration of Christ as King through His conquering over all who would set themselves against Him. This multiple events include His incarnation, death, and resurrection. One of the things that Peter points out in his, at his sermon at Pentecost is that Christ has risen from the dead and that these men, these Israelites there in Jerusalem, had by lawless hands killed the King of glory. And He's now alive. And so that struck fear in their hearts. The one whom you killed unjustly is still alive. And he has all power given to him. That should strike fear in the hearts of all who rise up against our Lord. It also includes the gifting of the Spirit to the church. As Christ has ascended to the Father, yet he sends the Holy Spirit to the church, gifting the church with what is necessary to continue the work of Christ on the earth. And then again, it culminates in both the display of Christ's glory and the judgment of the wicked and the final salvation of His people. In that day, true justice will be accomplished in the universe. 
It's the final act of Christ making all things new. I don't know if if you've ever been subject to someone treating you unjustly. I think I can probably guess every single one of us here has been treated unjustly or unfairly by someone. And lest we get too self-centered and too focused on that, have we not all also treated people unjustly and unfairly? We yearn for justice in our day and age. It is the mantra of society today, is it not? And yet there is no action, no path that we take as human beings that will ultimately bring about justice. It is Christ who brings true justice. And that justice comes in this day. How is this day going to come? Again, look with me in verse 10. The day of the Lord will come as a thief or like a thief. Peter here is likely alluding to what either Jesus has said or more likely what Paul had said. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 2, Paul writes to the church of Thessalonica, Now concerning the times and the season, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Jesus himself In Matthew 24, where he is describing some of these end times things that are going to happen, some of the actions that will happen in the day of the Lord, says this. He commands his disciples, stay awake. You do not know on what day your Lord is coming, but know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed what? Awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, so using this as an example, therefore, what must we do? We must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. What Jesus is pointing out here, and what's very clear in both what Paul said in Thessalonians and what Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 24, is you know something. You know that the Lord is coming back. Now, most of us aren't prepared for a thief to come, right? You're sound asleep at night. I had a really, I was sound asleep last night. Like so deep I had this, I had this dream that I was an astronaut. It was so vivid. Like, you ever have really vivid dreams? This has nothing to do with the sermon. But anyways, I, I was really deeply asleep. And I'll tell you what, if a thief had broken into the house, I probably would have slept through the thing. Why? Because I didn't know that the thief was coming. And Jesus points to his people. He points to his disciples. Paul points to uh, God's people. Peter is reminding God's people, you know that Christ is coming back. So what should we do? We must be ready. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, we are children of light, children of the day. We're not of the night, we're not of the darkness. So what is the conclusion from that? Let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be Sober. 
So when Peter here says and balances the patience of God that ensures the salvation of all His people, he balances that with the reality that the day of the Lord will come. And so our responsibility is to be prepared, to be ready. And much of that readiness is described in verses 11 through 12. And we will look at that 12 and 13. We'll look at that next week. But I would say primarily, as you're here today, as you're hearing these words, as the warning is issued, you know the Lord is coming back. Are you ready? Have you turned from seeking your own way? Have you repented of finding and following your own path and placing yourself on the throne of your life? And have you bowed the knee to the king who one day will come back and you will stand before? As sure as the sun will rise tomorrow, so sure is the coming of the Lord. Are you ready? And as a believer, have you lived your life awake? Do you want to be caught off guard when the Lord comes back? What will you be occupying your life with when you hear the trumpet? What will be the thoughts of your mind? We don't know when the Lord is coming back. We know He's coming back. And so my fear is that as Christians, we sort of live this life with uh, a mental truth and a mental assent to the fact that, yes, Jesus is coming back, but then our lives lived out before the world, before ourselves, before our Lord is, ah, we don't really think it's a reality. If we truly believed the coming of Christ, our lives would be so different than the world in which we live in. We ought not to be like the world of Noah. In those days, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. They were unaware, not because Noah didn't preach. He was a preacher of righteousness. They were unaware until the door was shut and the rain began to fall. And they were swept. How many of them? All. They were swept all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Paul reminds the Thessalonians. While people are saying there is peace and security. Boy, I tell you what. We live in a day and age where we have seen in human history, now not everything is perfect, don't get me wrong, but if you look back in human history, we live in the most prosperous nation, we live in the most prosperous time in human history, and there is relative peace and security, particularly if you live in America. And I thank God for the wonderful, gracious gift of what He's given us, but listen, we must never let what God has graced us with here be an excuse 
to say, ah, I'll live my life however I want to. While people are saying peace and security, what comes upon them? Sudden destruction. As labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. So Peter's reminder to us is that God's wrath will come. Do not mistake the patience of the Lord as an indication that there are no consequences for sin. There's no escaping this day. And the question that you have to face this morning, that you need to consider in your own hearts, is do you look on that day with joyful expectation or do you look on that day with dread and fear? Will it be a day of destruction for you or a day of delight? May we all here this morning find it to be a day of delight as we have turned from our own, seeking our own kingdom to seeking Christ as King above all. Well, what will happen on this day of the Lord? God's wrath will come Secondly, we see God's wrath will consume. Peter describes in vivid detail what will happen on the day of the Lord. It's not a simple thing. It's not a passing judgment. It is the complete and utter destruction of this world. Notice what he says. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. Peter's description is terrifying. He describes the heavens passing away with a roar. The term used here for roar has the idea of a rushing sound. And if, I don't know if you've ever, I I like to build fires, like responsibly build fires. All right, I'm not like going around just starting fires in people's houses and stuff like that. Although there was one time where I almost caught my my in-laws' hillside on fire, but we won't talk about that. Anyways, you ever built a really intense fire, and and you get close close to the fire, maybe changing the logs around, and what do you hear? You hear crackling, and sometimes you hear a rushing wind sound, burning type sound. Say, I like fires so much, I do imitations of fires. Imagine if that was the sky. You know, one thing about a controlled fire, a responsible fire, is that it is contained. Imagine if you were to walk out these doors today and look up, and instead of seeing clouds, all you heard was the sound of burning in the sky. I mean, one of the things we often think of when we think about the destruction of the world is this earthly rock. We very seldomly think about the terrifying event that will come when the sky, the atmosphere burns. The Old Testament prophesies of this, speaks of how all the host of heaven shall rot away and the skies will roll up like a scroll. 
All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. Jesus tells us heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will not pass away. Isn't it amazing what a providential God we have today? We sang, the choir sang, the Bible stands. Though the hills may tumble, though this world may rot away, the Bible stands. Tim, we didn't coordinate that, did we? No. And yet it's a reminder to us, as Jesus himself says, this whole world, the atmosphere itself may burn with fervent fire, but God's word will not pass away. And we see its fulfillment in Revelation. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its face. And at the very end, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Why do we need a new heaven and a new earth? Because what had happened to the first heaven? It passed away along with the first earth, and the sea was no more. And so the heaven will pass away with a roar. And then he speaks of, the ESV translates this, the heavenly bodies. The King James uses the term elements. I actually like that a little bit better because I think it, it more carefully describes what Peter is describing. The, the Greek word used here for heavenly bodies refers to the basic foundational building blocks of something. And so if we were to you know, look, and I'm, I'm no scientist, but as I understand it, the periodic table of elements refers to the things that make up the world in which we live. And so these elemental bodies, these heavenly bodies, will also be burned up and dissolved. Now, I want you to see the comprehensive nature of God's judgment on this earth. He doesn't just take the form away. He takes away the fundamental aspects of that form. The elements themselves will be burned up and destroyed. So that the things that exist will dissolve. That's the final conclusion, he says here. They'll be burned up and dissolved. They won't last. They won't endure. The, compre- the destruction of the heavens and the earth is comprehensive. It's not man- merely transformed into another state. It is completely gone. And we see that the fire of God's vengeance will not only remove the heavens but it will expose and destroy all that is on the earth. Notice what he says here. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. God's wrath will consume. There's no escape. For those who turn from Christ, from those who reject Him, for those who turn away from Him, there is no escape from this day of judgment. And this day of judgment comes finally as that which will expose. Look at the final phrase here in verse 10. The earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Now, I have to be honest with you. If you were looking at this in the original languages, it, it, the construction is somewhat difficult. It's, it's a hard 
formulation, and, and at some point, it, it, if you translate it very literally, you sort of think this doesn't seem to fit, because it literally means that um, the, the earth and the works in it will be found. Now, there's no doubt, there's no question as to where these things are. So what is going on here? Now, there are a number of interpretive solutions that have been put forward for this. But I think the ESV captures the meaning here well, that they will be exposed. There actually are some manuscripts that use the term burned up, but there are not very many. There's not much attesting to them. So most likely, this idea of exposing or showing or revealing what the world is is what's in what's the idea here is Clement of Alexandria writing likely about what Peter is talking here about 150 years after Peter made this statement says this he says but you know that the day of judgment is already coming as a blazing furnace and some of the heavens will dissolve and the whole earth will be like lead melting in a fire and then the works of men the secret and the public will appear. So the final point that Peter drives home to is to not just simply focus on the amazing actions of the destruction of this world, which will be fearful and spectacular. The the, the air on fire, the earth destroyed, but rather he takes that reality and then drives it home into your and mine own hearts. Because on that day, everything will be exposed. All your works will be exposed. There's no hiding from God's judgment. And there's no hiding from the exposure of what you have done in your life from God's eyes. When Jesus was on the way to Calvary, there were women who were mourning him. They were struck with the suffering that the Savior was facing. And Jesus has a word for them. He says to these women who are weeping over him as he's on the way to Calvary, for behold, the days are coming when they will say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to this mountain, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. Jesus' point in making this statement, as he says, Don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because there's a day where everything will be revealed, and there's no hiding from it. It's fulfilled in Revelation. The kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks and the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and what? Hide us. From the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the land. For the great Day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? 
you realize that every work you do, every deed, every thought in your mind is done before a God who knows comprehensively what you've done and what you've thought. Solomon tells us that the eyes of the Lord are where? Every place. That includes here today. It includes those times when you're in public. It includes those times when you're alone. It includes those times when you're on your computer and nobody can see what you're doing or your cell phone and no one knows what you're doing. It includes those times when you're on the road driving by yourself. You realize every moment of your life is lived before the eyes of God. Jesus himself John 2, 24 through 25 tells us that he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. Why? Because he knew what was what? In man. He didn't just know the actions, he knew the attitudes and the thoughts driving those things. And there is a day that will come As Paul says in Romans 2, For when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written in their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my what? Gospel. What will God do? He judges what? The secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Listen, you can fool everybody. You can can put on a face. You can appear to be the most righteous, holy, zealous individual in this church. And yet, underneath it all can be a fomenting, disgusting secret of sin. And you can go along the pathway, and people on this earth may be none the wiser, but God will one day expose your secrets. And He will judge them by Christ Jesus. As the writer of Hebrews tells us, there is no creature that is hidden from God's sight, but we are all naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we not maybe, not should, but what? Must give account. Just as the heavens and the earth will be stripped bare by intense fire, there will also be no, and there will be no escape from God's wrath. It will strip away any place to hide, and God will consume all those who persist in sin without repentance and persist in rejecting Christ as Savior. All of this is tied up 
in what Peter says when he says, the day of the Lord will come. This should terrify us. It should cause us to seek within our own hearts a sincere evaluation. Realize sin is a huge deal. And nothing you do will be hidden on that day. And no matter how long God may delay His coming for the sake of the salvation of His people, that day will come. We will all stand before Christ. So how do we respond to this? If you want to take your Bibles and turn to Malachi chapter 4, I'll have the passage up here. And again, this is a nice little preview of what we're going to be looking at once we finish 2 Peter, as we're going to be looking at the last four minor prophets in the Old Testament. This is the last chapter of the Old Testament. And it's interesting to me that that God chooses to remind His people Israel of some things as the last book before there's going to be 400 years of silence. What does God remind His people? He says, look, the day is what? Coming. Just as Peter said. And on that day it will come burning like an oven when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. How do we respond? Very quickly, four things. Realize the certainty of God's wrath. Peter and Malachi are saying the same thing. The day of the Lord will come. There is no escape. There is no question. It will happen. So what are we to do? As Malachi described in vivid detail, God is going to burn the wicked in an oven and they will be totally consumed. So what's the response to that? And and remember what Paul said in Romans. He said that God will judge the secrets of men, and that was a message from his what? Gospel. How can that be good news? And the reality is the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, is only good news if you first understand the bad news. And the bad news is terrifying. God will judge sin in fiery retribution. So what are we to do? Fear the Lord and trust 
the Son of Righteousness. The one who will come with healing in its wings. We suffer and languish under a world where unrighteous people do unrighteous deeds and harm us unrighteously. But there is a day where God in Christ will restore all things. He will shower us with righteousness. And on that day, there will be healing for us. You see that the day of the Lord becomes a day of joyful expectation when we are in Christ. When we have turned away from sin, when we have rejected fear of anything else but the Lord and trusted in Him, then His coming is, come Lord Jesus, bring this day. Realizing that we will stand before God, not because of our righteousness, not because of what we have done, but because our faith is placed in Christ who has become for us righteousness and peace before God. And then we need to remember, thirdly, that judgment is whose act? The Lord's act. This reminds me of what Paul says in Romans 13. When are we allowed to avenge ourselves on those who treat us unrighteously? Never. Why? Because vengeance is the Lord's. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. And so there's a reminder for us here as well that God is the one who acts in judgment. Our responsibility is to speak the message of hope to the world so that they would not experience that fearful day. Even if they mistreat us and abuse us and harm us and hunt us and kill us and imprison us, we have a responsibility to tell them the good news and to warn them of the bad news. And then the final thing that Malachi reminds us of is that we need to live a life that accords with holiness. At the very end of that passage, he tells us to remember the law that God gave to Israel through Moses. In fact, that's what Peter himself points to in verse 11 of our passage. And this is just sort of a preview of next week. Since all these things, since the things of this world are to be dissolved, What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? I don't want to get ahead of myself and preach next week's sermon. But I I think it would be remiss for me to not just point out that this becomes the defining principle that allows us to remember that we are pilgrims, that we don't belong here. Because when we become tied to the things of this earth, our money, our finances, our cars, our careers, our possessions, what's going to happen to it all? It's all going to burn. So shouldn't that disentangle us from this world? Shouldn't that really put us on the path of a pilgrim so that we can live a life 
that honors the thing that truly will endure. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God and His Word will endure. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the hope we have in it. And Lord, may You work in our midst by Your Spirit today. We pray all this in Christ's name.